0: Hello, this is Jim Petrosky, President and Co-Founder of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, with a special programming announcement. We hope this holiday season gives you ample time to relax and enjoy time with your family and friends. In order to do the same for the incredible members of NIDS, we will be suspending the NIDS View broadcast until after the new year, with our next show airing on January 3rd. We encourage you to rejoin us then for another year of insightful discussion of deterrence topics of the day. I also encourage you to listen to our special edition broadcast of NIDS Knowledge, airing on the 25th of December with a reading of Twas the Night Before NIDS Was. From all of us at NIDS, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy and peaceful New Year. And as always, fake deterrence. Now back to this week's show.
1: Welcome to another exciting episode of The NIDS View, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we discuss and analyze a recent topic and provide insight into how it affects our national deterrence. We hope you enjoy this show. Welcome back to another great episode
0: of The NIDS View. Of course, I am Adam Lowther, and today we have with us some very special guests, Steve Blank and Peter are joining Curtis and I, your normal guests. And the reason we've got Steve and Peter in is, you know, Steve is writing, has written a new article and he's got some concerns and, and Peter wanted to talk about those as well. And that is this this issue of the rising threat of proliferation. And so rather than going and droning on, as I often do uh, in the opening, I wanted to just toss it over to Steve. Steve, uh, so you're writing about proliferation risks, and you think that there's some concerns that we should be, well, concerned about. And I wanted to just get you to take that on first and then have Peter come in and and, and add some color commentary to your thoughts.
2: Well, OK, thank you. I'll do the play by play. Yes, the article, uh, which is now being reviewed for publication, uh, uh, alerts us to the Russian and lesser degree Chinese proliferation threat. Uh, I'm not disparaging the Chinese proliferation threat, but since I'm not a China expert, I I didn't feel uh, confident enough to comment on Chinese policy as well as Russian policy in 800 words. But the Russian (laughs) proliferation policy is a very dangerous business because it is not just a proliferation policy, in my view. It is part of what I increasingly am calling Russia's horizontal strategy. I took that phrase from a French analyst, first-class analyst, Nikola Tenzer, Uh, and uh, I'm uh, hoping to expand that into a major publication. The proliferation, to use the term that everybody is familiar with, is taking place in many ways. Um, Russia is exporting more uranium to China than ever before. And is seeking to gain nuclear power plant access in Central Asia, presumably to obtain even more uranium, possibly for China, but possibly for other bad actors, North Korea. We now know, for example, that North Korea and Russia are militarily cooperating in a very substantial way. Uh, Pyongyang sent a million shells to Russia for Ukraine. There is going to be a quid pro quo, although nobody knows what it is yet, and it could well have nuclear overtones. Second, Russia has moved its nuclear weapons into Belarus. Apart from this being essentially a closure of Belarus's sovereignty, it's a violation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and it raises the greater danger of a nuclear war, not only in the current Ukraine war, but potentially in Central and Eastern Europe or maybe Scandinavia, given Belarus. Third, Russia and Iran are now military partners. Iran has transferred to the Russians thousands of drones. It is building a drone factory in Russia, and in conversations between the two heads of state and, of course, between lower-ranking officials, it is clear that Russia is going to be sending Iran weapons. Iran claims to have um, negotiated a deal by which the SU-35 fighter and other systems are going to be coming to Iran. Uh, It's not clear that actually is going to happen, but there's been no denial from Russia of that, which would otherwise normally be the case if it were not so. So we have a a number of instances of Russia violating the NPT, facilitating nuclear capabilities of China, facilitating military, if not nuclear capabilities of North Korea and Iran. And that alone, I think, is disturbing and grounds for anxiety. Furthermore, Russia broke the non-proliferation treaty along with seven other treaties when it invaded Ukraine. One of the clauses of the NPT, is that nuclear states pledge they will not invade non-nuclear states. And by invading Ukraine, Russia has contributed to a process whereby all those states that we were worried about a generation ago having nuclear weapons, and who gave them up, Libya, Ukraine, Iraq, well, Iraq didn't give them up, but it never had them, All those states were either actively building or reportedly building nuclear weapons. They've all been invaded, as has Ukraine. And that'll make it much more difficult for North Korea to be persuaded to give up nuclear weapons if that ever happens. I'm one of those skeptics who don't believe they intend to. But if a political agreement were to be reached between North Korea and the United States, as well as the other four parties in the six-party process, Russia, China, South Korea and Japan, North Korea uh, would then give them up, but it can point accurately to the fact that, everybody else who gave up nuclear weapons was invaded and destroyed, and that wars went on in these countries for years, as has been the case in all of the examples I gave. So all this is extremely worrisome uh, for proliferation. and is by no means the only uh, proliferation issue out there. But that's a good start.
0: Let me throw it over to you, Peter. So, as as you've heard, Steve talk about his concerns, uh, would is do you want to pile on to what he said, or do you see that there might be additional concerns in other regions? I know you wrote an article for Global Security Review uh, a few days back that you were in particular talking about concerns with China and its rapid expansion, and you know I've written on the topic and my colleagues at the National Strategic Research Institute have written on the fact that the Chinese have far more plutonium than we have initially Mm -hmm. thought that. So is it, is it Steve's concerns or additional concerns?
3: I would fit Steve's remarks in the context of uh, Russell Mead and Nadia Chocla have both written for the Wall Street Journal in the last month, their concern about the breakdown in international norms, what they call the liberal international order. However, you want to describe it, the Chinese in 1982, Deng Xiaoping, issued a decree saying that China aimed to arm Pakistan, North Korea, Libya, Iran, and I think Iraq was included, though. Tom Reed doesn't, uh, he can't find solid evidence of that, to give them and help them with nuclear weapons through primarily what became the Khan Network in Pakistan. And if you notice, if you look at all those countries, Pakistan's nuclear weapons made it very difficult to go in and take out those sanctuaries, which the Taliban and al-Qaeda went to, and so we couldn't finish the Afghani war. With Libya, as you know, the nuclear program precipitated a number of uh, conflicts and all the weapons that went from Libya to Syria, and the huge migration into Europe because of the fall of the Qaddafi government and the chaos that was there. And then you add, don't have to. I don't have to tell you what Iran's up to. And their, I think their their threat is, we'll get nuclear weapons and then we'll really be bad. So leave us alone. So we have the administration going and trying to reestablish the Joint Comprehensive Program of Action, which is not joint, not comprehensive, not a program, and not action. It's, it's it's basically, I think the Israelis are right that what it does is gives Iran the ability to build nuclear weapons once all these provisions expire. When you add that up, Tom Reed also made a point that Antropov, on exactly the same week as Deng Xiaoping announced to the Chinese Politburo they were going to migrate nuclear weapons technology to these countries, Antropov made the same pledge to the Politburo. Now, the thing is, as Steve will tell you, there wasn't a huge amount of evidence that Russia was undertaking this uh, very visibly. But now we know, as Steve just laid out, with respect to North Korea, Iran, and other countries, and now Belarus, Russia is cooperating not only militarily, but with respect to China, they're helping them with their nuclear weapons uh, fuel with respect to North Korea, giving them money, which helps the North help uh, expand its nuclear capability. So we're basically having two countries, Russia and China, and their allies play fast and loose with nuclear weapons developments. And the question is, how reckless will they be? To me, that is the because it, 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 you never know where conflict is going to occur. We didn't anticipate, we anticipated, I think, Russia was going to do something in, in Ukraine, but I don't think we did the first time or the second time, and now that what we have here. Uh, strategic uh, surprise happens to be pretty much the norm if you look at everything from Pearl Harbor up to 9-11 is that we didn't anticipate a lot of things that happened. So things can happen quickly, and if Russia and China are in the business of recklessly threatening threatening the use of nuclear weapons or and I think recklessly transferring horizontally to other countries' nuclear capabilities. Uh, if you look at Iran, Libya, Pakistan, North Korea, Iraq, every single one of those problems have been basically really, really problematic for the United States. I mean look at all the problems we've been facing. They're all related to countries which either were trying to get nuclear weapons or do have nuclear weapons. And I think, Adam, the issue in my mind is, as I've often asked Steve and people who threat, what are these countries going to do with these nuclear capabilities that they otherwise would not be able to do? And my view is commit aggression or support aggression by Russia or China. And that makes it very problematic for us. Is our, is our deterrent still working? Uh, Do we have to enhance it? One thing about the Strategic Posture Commission said, we put together the 2010 posture, which is now the program of record, in a very different world we thought was existing. We thought Russia and China were going to cooperate with us to go after bad guys, terrorists, who might try to get nuclear weapons. Now, I thought at the time that was much too narrow and that Russia and China were not our friends and not going to be cooperative. And, of course, that's now come true. So we have a program of record we have to do, but now the Posture Commission says we have to develop better capability, more capability to deter because what we have now is necessary but not adequate. And I think, Adam, that is the single most important thing they said with one other thing. They said Russia and China are in the business of using nuclear weapons for coercive purposes, what Steve talked about, Dr. Blank talked about, That, to me, is the most worrisome thing is what do you need to do to stop the coercive use of nuclear weapons by these bad guys? And to me, that's the challenge to our deterrent capability, which Posture Commission laid out, which Congress now is dealing with in terms of what do they add to what we already have.
0: Now, there was an article that came out today in War on the Rocks by Al Maroney that was highly critical of the strategic posture commission's report. And and this is a question I want to ask you, Curtis. And that's this idea that Moroni advances that says that nuclear coercion has always failed. And that it will always fail in the future. And that it's, you know, it's it's not a successful strategy. And I, you know, Peter, I think you brought it up. Steve, you know, there were some some links between, you know, your thoughts And this idea of nuclear coercion and how it might be used and potentially spread uh, and be used again by additional actors. So, Curtis, do you see, I mean, is Maroney right that nuclear coercion has consistently failed and will fail in the future? Or do you see an opportunity for it to be employed successfully.
4: Yeah. I think, and it's, it's so good to have Dr. Blank and the great, and great Peter Husey here uh, uh, on our, on our little podcast. So it's so nice. Um, yeah. So I would say that it's a different world. So whatever Al Moroni used to, to, uh, to measure against, I would argue that this is a different paradigm and it, it's likely that adversary coercion never, never worked because their arsenals were small. And America's arsenal was large, and that's changing, right? And so, um, you know, what we see here, uh, Peter's question of why do they, why do these nations want to proliferate? And I would argue it's some version of the uh, stability and stability paradigm, right? So if you have the shadow of nuclear weapons, um, oh, you know, it, it's sort of empowering to do things below that threshold. Uh, And so when you're in Iran, for example, that wants to, that makes, sort of makes its living with proxy uh, forces, you all of a sudden have a, have a new power to yield these proxy forces when they're other, when they're under the, 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 an umbrella of nuclear coercion. And, and so I think uh, that's an example. And so I think that's just part of, uh, part of the, um, the argument for the smaller countries, they're so fearful of America's conventional might and our credibility to regime change that the, uh, you know, when you cannot take on the United States conventionally, the, the best option is to nuke up. And America's proven pretty well to be reasonably nuclear deterred. <laughs> so, uh, so I would say that they, they've, they've figured it out and they're willing to, uh, to make the investment whether it's in real money or capital or, or taking the political hit uh, in an international system that they don't really respect anyway. And that's why the treaties are failing and these sorts of things. So my th- thought to answer Peter's great question is that we have to take the fear off of our shoulders and put it back onto theirs. The only way you're going to bring them back to some sort of reasonable behavior system or to comply with treaties in a system they don't necessarily agree with is to make it in their best interest. And that's usually through fear. So I think we have a lot of work to do as a free world if we're going to put them back in the box.
0: So let me follow up with all of you. And, you know, as you were talking, you know, uh, Steve earlier about this nexus of relationship that's dramatically improved between North Korea and Russia. I uh, I wonder in in this goes also somewhat back to what you said Curtis because we we very clearly know that the Russians fear American fifth generation fighters uh, loaded with precision conventional munitions attriting key Russian targets. They fear that. We know that the Chinese fear advanced conventional strike capabilities and therefore, you know, they're expanding an arsenal hoping to deter the United States, the North Koreans, you know, they've said they're going to go to 500 and Steve, this was one of the questions I sort of ultimately had for you was, you know, do you see this Russia enabling uh, a North Korea to go to that number through its provision of special nuclear material and, and I wonder as, you know, as we sort of talk through all of this, if each of you were to say, here's my sort of the thing I worry most about, particularly as it relates to prolifer proliferation, what would be that thing that you worry most about? Cause I, I know what I'm, I've got something I'm most worried about, but I, I wonder if we'll start, go back with you, Steve. And, have you kick it off? It, what is it that, you, in terms of proliferation, what do you worry most about? What specific event or thing or relationship keeps you up at night, you know, sort of more than any other?
2: Well, to be honest with you, none of this keeps me up at night. But, that may be <laughs> <laughs>
4: but
2: uh, you know, because uh, probably by the time I get to sleep, I'm too yeah. tired anyway. But, uh, but there are a lot of serious <laughs> anxieties here. I'm particularly concerned for a number of reasons about the Iranians getting this. Now, I haven't read Al Moroni's article, so I can't comment on what he's saying. But I think too much American commentary does, does not take into account that we are dealing with people who don't think like That's we right. do. Um, and they Amen. come out of another Amen. culture and a different historical experience. And a different set of threats that they perceive, and 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 uh, mechanisms of perception that are also different than ours, uh, to to take uh, to accept that kind of categorical formulation uh, as being true. I mean, governments don't think that nuclear coercion uh, doesn't work because if they if they really did think that, they wouldn't be going after nukes. Uh, and, you know, we're dealing with serious people mm-hmm. and they're not just, uh, to use the infamous uh, uh, Paul Warnke analysis of what uh, I think it was hamsters on a wheel or something like that. Uh, so the uh, issue is more compl- complicated. Well, than Steve,
4: that. these are rational
2: actors, uh, right? Who are pursuing these
4: nuclear weapons.
2: Well, that, that now you not when you get into that, you open up an enormous kettle of fish <laughs> Uh they are acting rationally in terms of i mean look i i we can't the four of us cannot conduct a clinical examination of any of these people well this is a podcast I mean, we we're have supposed to do, that. To do it. <laughs> no no when, no no in all seriousness I, uh we don't have the skills they wouldn't let us if they could, if we could uh and uh, you have to take into account their systems um The Russian system, for example, is one of inbuilt paranoia. Now, to say that Putin is a certifiably paranoid person, okay, you might be able to make that argument, but his system is paranoid. So he's operating according to the logic of his system. Uh, Xi Jinping, I think, and uh, uh, Khamenei and Raisi in in, uh, Iran and Kim Jong-un, are probably the same. I mean, everybody's met Kim, jo- Kim Jong Un or his or his father, for that matter, or his grandfather. Never came out and said these are really irrational, go- crazy people. But it, the, the systems foster an overdeveloped threat assessment. So, rationality thing we we should even touch that. We have to. That's a long discussion. But what keeps me up at night, I think, is the particular case of Iran, because with Iran, what will happen with nuclear weapons is that they will extend deterrence beyond what they have done, to actors like Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis, and other similar groups. And we see what what that leads to. I mean, it leads to an enormous human catastrophe on its own merits, uh, which has the power to spread. So, even if it's unintended. I mean, you know, limited war, well, it may not be so easy to control it. Um, you know, Putin tried in Ukraine, and you see what we've got there. Mm-hmm. The last guy who was able to control to some degree limited war successfully was Bismarck, and I would argue in Alsace and in, in, in the Franco-German War, it, gave, it, it nearly escaped his control, and the consequences, even that it didn't, led to World War One. Well, long after he was gone. Nevertheless, uh, these guys are no Bismarcks. Uh, <laughs> whatever their merits may be. But again, so I worry a great deal about Iran, and I worry about North Korea, because in North Korea's case, we have four nuclear states already engaged where their vital interests are legitimately at stake. Two more states that could go nuclear very quickly if they felt it necessary to do so. Those are the two greatest threats out there. Of course we're not even talking about india pakistan and uh, you know the the pakistanis use of nuclear weapons resembles that of russia basically to provoke trouble in the expectation that they'll, they'll get away with it what happens if they don't get away with it we don't know so uh those are the things that you know worry me the most but and also in that context is the fact that in, in my belief and i I've written extensively on this Russia and China are military allies de facto, not de jure but de facto and the the Chinese are the rider and the uh, Russians are the horse and the Chinese and the Russians are not above threatening or using force to get their way as we see in uh, Ukraine but also for example now in the South China Sea with the Philippines for example Uh, and these things can go out of control yeah. So for you, Peter, what what say you? Well,
3: I have to first say I agree with Dr. Blank, but I would go to Iran one step further. And remember Keith Payne, our dear friend who's head of NIPP. He wrote a whole series of papers in part for the Hudson Institute and Herman Kahn about deterrence. I'm going to tell two stories. They're both true. Castro urged <laughs> Khrushchev to launch the nuclear weapons at the United States during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Khrushchev said, are you crazy? The United States will obliterate Cuba. Castro said, yes, but socialism wins because we made the capitalists use nuclear weapons against a defenseless country, Cuba. That's number one. Second is Khomeini was asked that if he used nuclear weapons against Israel, he called Israel one bomb state. The issue is that Khomeini was told, well, won't Israel just obliterate Iran? And Khomeini says, I don't care about Iran. And I don't care if we get nuked. His role, his job, his goal and objective was to destroy the Jews. Israel. So when you, we would say that's totally irrational. Jim uh, Woolsey said that the Iranians are genocidal maniacs. He's right, but from their point of view, that's their mission. And whether you think it's intrinsic to Islam or you think it's just the uh, the Twelfthers uh, in uh, in Iran, I don't care. It, the thing is, they think that's rational. And my concern is. As Steve pointed out, a crisis can occur, which we don't anticipate. And when you have Pakistan, Iran, or North Korea, they do not have a history of, like we and the Russians have, is we know what the Russians are doing when they do something with a nuclear weapon, when they deploy a missile or when they uh, put a bomber up in the air. China less so. But these countries, they're basically infants when it comes to this business and we may not know how they interpret what we do. And we may not know what they're mean to do when they do something with nuclear weapons. So it's very, very dangerous, apart from violation of the NPT and everything, is that Pakistan, North Korea, and Iran get away with murder, literally. Two have nukes and one everybody thinks has them in the backyard somewhere. So they use nuclear coercion all the time. I disagree with uh, the, the the article, which was in uh, uh, the news recently, you know, in uh, War on the Rocks, on the yeah. Rocks is, it, it, you know, then you're basically saying, oh, who cares if they have nuclear weapons? Nuclear decursion doesn't work. Uh, yeah, we have a deterrent. It has deterred the Soviets from invading Western Europe through the Folder Gap, thank God. It so far has prevented North Korea from again invading South Korea, but it has not stop them from engaging in wholesale, uh, it's not mischief, and I, I call it mayhem. I call these four countries the brothers mayhem, is they're caused enormous amount of death, destruction, violence in the world, which is, look what the United States and Afghanistan and Iraq, just those two places, what we spent in terms of what, $7 trillion? Lost 4,000 plus troops. And in part, it was a worry about the Taliban getting nukes, and then having to respond to nine eleven. But we went into Saddam's place because we said, you know, as Butler and Achias said at the UN, they said in nineteen ninety nine and two thousand in their book, they said Saddam's going to go get nuclear weapons, even though we took them away from him in nineteen ninety four. You know, during or during during and after the war uh, to liberate Kuwait. So my concern, Adam, is that. These countries really, as Steve pointed out, they believe using nuclear weapons works. Otherwise, they wouldn't wouldn't get them, okay? And the reason we have the NPT and try so hard to stop proliferation is we know how deadly these things are. And if they get out of control, you know, things could spin out of control where you could have a civilization ending war.
4: So, so yeah, so let me ask this, gentlemen um... – if it doesn't look like we're able to treaty, use a treaty to control the proliferation of these weapons, why can't uh, we appeal to, um, to their to their 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 big brothers, if you will, in Russia and China, to say you need to make sure that they are behaving in a certain way. If 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 it's inevitable that they're going to have nuclear weapons, um. And we can't seem to affect their behavior. Why not put the pressure on those who they answer to?
2: Well, first of all, in North Korea's case, North Korea doesn't answer to anybody. OK. The Russians have now, I mean, they have the nuclear weapons. And one of the reasons they got nuclear weapons was to be able to emancipate themselves from not just what they considered to be an American south korean japanese threat but also from chinese tutelage they can tell the chinese to, to go to hell simply yeah. uh we have nukes, you know and the chinese are very careful about how far they can push north korea and russia now needs north korea north korea established its bona fides with uh, uh suddenly okay you help you need help here's a million shells uh but there's a quid pro quo and we We don't know what that is yet. Um, And the same is true uh, potentially for Iran. So Iran also is not going to answer to Russia. They will simply write it out. I mean, they have a long history of mistrust with the Russians. They don't have any uh, illusions on that score, I'm sure. But they're more anti-American than they are anti-Russian or Korea being anti-Chinese. And second... In Moscow's case now, anti-Americanism drives everything. I, I'll give you an example. I mean, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we get this nonsense now in Venezuela where they're claiming you know, part of Guyana. Why? Well, I mean, I think it's part the report seems to indicate a diversionary uh, threat, if not war, for Maduro. But I wouldn't be surprised if Moscow said, go ahead, make trouble. Sure. Yeah, benefits them. Moscow has supported Hamas. I mean, people in, in my business in, in Adams, you know, who are writing about Russian policy, don't realize that Russia has been giving arms through Iran to Hamas and Hezbollah since about 2003, 2004, and and you still get this that they, you know, they recognize Hamas and they claim they're not terrorists because they quote freedom fighters or they have a political movement and so on. But uh, they came, they've been giving them the weapons, so much so that in 2006 and seven, when the Russian defense minister came to Israel and, and started on this line, they took them to their storages and showed them the Russian markings on all the weapons. And so we're getting people now running, well, they're not giving weapons to Hamas, but they certainly support Hamas unreservedly. Their propaganda supports them. Uh, and it's not the subordination that you saw during the Cold War where you will do as you're told or else bad things are going to happen, it's now there's a meeting of the minds and let's, you know, you go ahead, make trouble for the United States and we'll back you as long as it doesn't get out of control. Well, you know, until it get, when it does get out of control, then what? Yes, exactly.
3: Yeah, Adam, let me, I just want to say the Chinese deliberately gave North Korea nuclear weapons because they thought That would intimidate South Korea. So South Korea would make an accommodation and get rid of the American forces in South Korea. And the Chinese miscalculated because it's done nothing but strengthen the alliance between the US and South Korea, but done something else, which the Chinese don't like, which is strengthen the alliance and cooperation between Japan and South Korea. My view is If South Korea was serious and got nuclear weapons or was moving in that direction, you would have a very different view in China about whether North Korea should or should not have nuclear weapons. Now, Steve is right that having nukes now, the cat's out of the bag, the North has a certain ability to tell the Chinese to shove off. But on the other hand, China so dominates food and energy and other supplies to North Korea, I think it's not quite... There's a there's a mutual love hate relationship here, obviously, historically. But I think China China doesn't yet think it's miscalculated, but it may have in terms of the South Koreans and the Japanese. Japan is a much bigger stretch, but South Korea could very well get nuclear weapons. Uh, they've already we've taken away the limit on the missiles that the South Koreans have that can reach Pyongyang and beyond. So. Again, I go back to you never know when a crisis is going to happen. You don't know who or the adversary is going to be on across the table. And the more nuclear weapons are running around, I don't believe Mr. Waltz is right that the more nuclear weapons we have in the world, the better because everybody will behave themselves. Uh, you know, the the pro proliferation idea. Um, so I, I agree with Steve that. I think the Chinese and Russians are playing with matches in a room full of kerosene or gasoline, whatever you want to say is the metaphor. And my my real fear, you know, what do I stay up at night? My real fear is they have miscalculated with their buddies, whether the Pakistanis or the South or North Koreans or others, and that the Iranians or one of these people will in fact use nuclear weapons to gain what they perceive as a major advantage or they get stuck in a position where they feel they have to lash out. thats That worries me more than anything. Uh, and then the question is, how reckless is Putin uh, if he starts losing in Ukraine or feels that he has to change the balance there? Does he use nuclear weapons in a theater mode somewhere in Ukraine or in the environment? And how does that change the world?
0: Unfortunately, gents... Uh, we are over our allotted time, so I'm going to have to uh, cut off this great discussion. Because one of the things that I, you know, our listeners, you know, they reach out to us from time to time and tell us what they like, and they like a 30 minute podcast, be set because they say I can start it and I can finish it on my drive into work. But if it were an right. hour, it would be too long. They can come. So Washington I will and drive try to in
2: Washington, then I'll have an hour. In the car. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. So Curtis, uh, a final comment from you. You've been largely quiet and then I'll wrap us up. Okay. Well, I I appreciate the perspective of these uh, experts and
4: and it's, it's an honor to be here and and chit chat with you uh, about this. Um, I guess I would, I would leave us with this thought in that um, there's lots of talk about what is stabilizing and what is destabilizing behavior. And I think we would all agree that this behavior is destabilizing. But clearly the Russians and the Chinese don't believe this behavior is destabilizing. Um, and so I would argue that if, that if we can agree to that, then are we now being destabilizing by not reacting proportionately? Um, and is it now the time for friendly uh, nuclear participation? This is what we call it here. We don't call it proliferation. We call it participation. Why is it not beneficial for first world nations like South Korea, Japan, Poland and other places who are responsible actors who we could actually control and shape and make sure they created or mon- or maintain arsenals that were safe, secure and reliable and, 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 and augmentation in some sort of numbers and sort of things. Why is that necessarily a bad thing anymore? That may be the only thing that we can use to place that fear off of our shoulders and on to Russia and China's. They are behaving because their anticipation, I think, is that we will not respond. And our, our non-response to their threat emboldens their continued threat. Uh, and, and the idea that we're going to uh, negotiate this away when they have broken every negotiated treaty anyway seems to be folly. And, uh, and I just wonder if we've tried everything else, let's not pursue the definition of insanity by doing the same thing again. And maybe it's time that we look at this problem set just a little bit differently and try to maybe push back a little bit more or at least make them scared that we will. That's my two cents.
0: All right. Well, Steve Blank, Peter Husey, Curtis McGiffin, thanks for joining us on this episode of the NIDS View and of course, thanks to you, the listeners, as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence.
1: Thank you for listening to the NIDS View. This show is produced under the NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I would like to thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative The NIDS View.